Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, the briefest of housekeepings here. Just want to announce that the first season of my podcast with Ricky Gervais, Absolutely Mental, has dropped. And 11 episodes are available at absolutelymental.com. The first three of those episodes we released here on the podcast. So there are eight new ones. And thank you all for letting us demo the series on you. Anyway, I had a tremendous amount of fun doing this with Ricky. These conversations really are just like the ones we've had in private to date. So if you want to ride along with us, that's where you can do it, at absolutelymental.com. Okay. Today I'm speaking with David White. David is a poet, and he's been on the podcast before. Truly wonderful voice, who's been producing more and more content for us over at Waking Up. His poems and short essays and extemporaneous reflections are slowly accruing over there, and um, it's really wonderful. And here is the next installment. We discuss a few more of his short essays from his book, Consolations. When I'm speaking with David, I feel like I'm speaking with my alter ego in some ways. He is so different from me, but there's so many places where we converge. Anyway, it's always great fun to speak with him. And now I bring you David White. I am back with David White. David, thanks for joining me again. It's a a pleasure. So we have uh, many more things to talk about, taking the the roadmap you have set out in your wonderful book, Constellations, the audio of which is um, slowly making its way into the Waking Up app. And so we have, uh, to remind people, this is your book of essentially prose poems or short essays focused on specific words. And we'll do a few more of those words today. But you also sent a poem through. Do you want to read yes, that? Yes, and- this, uh, this is a piece I wrote in a deep kind of reverie last week. I'm, I'm building on an original book of poems called Pilgrim. Many of, the, many of those poems took the image of a journey to a place that we set for ourselves. And especially, it took the form of going to Santiago de Compostela, uh, which is such a fashionable pilgrimage right now and Mm. still a heartfelt and sincere one across northern Spain. So this is called For the Road to Santiago. We all have that experience of the wonderful experience, actually, of packing for a new trip. But there's something about going to a place of ultimate meaning for us, which is represented by Santiago, where I feel we already have what we need. So this this was written out of that experience. Very short poem. For the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. For the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Bring what you have. Bring what you have. You're always going that way anyway. You were always going there all along. I like that a lot. So um, 
the distinction between being a tourist and a pilgrim is always fascinating. I mean, you know, on the surface, if you're moving your body from one place to another, you're going to some foreign country because you want to go, uh, or even some sacred place because you want to go, this distinction is really just in the mind of the traveler, but it's a pretty profound one. Exactly. Yeah. And there were always, you know, in the chronicles of of pilgrims, there are always those who were just out for a holiday and a laugh, you know, and just to get away to, especially in feudal times where your life was so, so hedged in, you know, by your responsibilities to those above you. So going off on pilgrimage was an enormous part of medieval life in England, you know, and all across the continent. But we're usually both, you know, we're, we're a pilgrim who gets, gets caught up in the delights of tourism along the way. And, uh, you know, we're, we're creatures of remembering and forgetting. And you could say that the, the tourism is a form of, of temporary forgetting. It begins in delight, a, a bit like opening the internet in the morning. It begins in delight. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's short-lived. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I am a creature of forgetting because I've, I've forgotten that it ever began in delight at this point. Yes. Well, I mean, part of, the, uh, part of the dynamic of the internet is human beings are so desperate for news, yeah, for a voice from the other side that's somehow going to change their present. And that setting off into the internet on the morning is the same it's the same call that every human being feels towards all the great pilgrimage sites that have lived in in our different human cultures, whether it's Mecca or Kyoto or Varanasi, or if you're an Elvis fan, it's Graceland, you know. Something mm. happened there that was extraordinary that you ha- are going to touch and you are going to actually incarnate it in your own in your own life. So it's this very it's this very ancient and everyday dynamic in human life that over there is just slightly more important than here where I'm standing <laughs> and hmm. and I'm going to make a journey out of here to there and something extraordinary is going to happen along the way and almost always something more extraordinary than I'm prepared for. I always say that no one really survives a real conversation with something other than Hmm. themselves. And uh, no one survives a real pilgrimage if you're sincere. The person who arrives is not, is never the person who began in the first place. Yeah, Yeah, that that might be the crucial distinction. I think when you are on pilgrimage, the goal to be changed by the trip is always explicit right it's not just yes. that you're interested or you yes. you just want to you've heard some places great it's an inner process yes. that you're focused on there's a lovely little piece um in the irish tradition written by an irish monastic you can imagine a pilgrimage from ireland to rome in the 6th or 7th or 8th century was quite perilous yeah mm. and quite extraordinary but it's just a few lines but he says to go to rome to go to rome great the journey little the gain. If you do not take him with you, you will not find him there. Hmm. To go to Rome, great the journey, 
little to gain. If you do not take him with you, you will not find him there. Of course, that's the image of Christ in the Christian tradition. But whatever your, the name you have for, for the great calling in your life, yeah, if you don't stay within the gravitational well and invitational pull of that calling, you will end up as a mere tourist. Yeah. But I, I think there's a lot of self-forgiveness necessary in every pilgrimage, just as there is in every life, of, of forgiving yourself for all, for all of your, uh, of your uh, parallel peregrinations, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> all the hours you wasted, you know, which in the end you find are, are all the great stories say you, you didn't waste a minute along the way you know, when, you, when you finally arrive there. That's a point that I think yes. we'll return to in discussing some of these words. But I actually have a question about the poem. This line, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. What, what were you thinking in terms of new declarations? This you know, has to do with our, the essential way that we hold the conversation of life. And uh, on any journey, the way we hold that exchange between those we meet along the way and the landscapes we meet along the way and the events we meet along the way, both joyous and traumatic. So there's a way, no matter your outward circumstances, that you hold the conversation of your existence. And, you know, in that essay, Destiny, I'm looking at the way that uh, this word, which seems fated, actually, can be an understanding of the depth by which we hold that conversation. You know? So you, I, I always think that every human being lives out their destiny no matter what they do. But you can live out your destiny through distance and exile and through never consummating your desires. Yeah? Or mm. you can live it out at a deep level and your life is, is completely is completely transformed because of the depth of attention and intentionality that you bring to the conversation. It's still your essential nature. It's just that you are inhabiting it in a fuller way. I mean, you, I mean, that's exactly what your, uh, your uh, app is all about, you know, is, is inviting people into these deeper states, conversational states, I would say while not leaving the essential foundations of, of the way you're made. Yeah. Well, let's um, listen to Destiny and discuss. Destiny. Destiny always has a possessor, as in my destiny, or your destiny, or her destiny. It gives a sense of something we cannot avoid, or something waiting for us, it is a word of story, book, or mythic dimension. Destiny is hardly used in everyday conversation. It is a word that invites belief or disbelief. We reject the ordering of events by some fated, unseen force, or we agree that there seems to be a greater hand than our own working at the edges of even the most average life. But speaking of destiny, not only grants us a sense of our own possibilities, but gives us an intimation of our flaws. We sense, along with Shakespeare, 
that what is unresolved or unspoken in a human character might overwhelm the better parts of ourselves. When we choose between these two poles of mythic triumph or fated failure, we may miss the everyday conversational essence of destiny, our future influenced by the very way we hold the conversation of life itself, never mind any actions we might take or neglect to take. Two people, simply by looking at the future in radically different ways, have completely different futures from one another awaiting them, no matter their immediate course of action. Even the same course of action, coming from a different way of shaping the conversation, will result in a different outcome. We are shaped by our shaping of the world, and are shaped again in turn. The way we face the world alters the face that we see in the world. The way we face the world alters the face that we see in that world. Strangely, every person always lives out their destiny, no matter what they do, according to the way they shape the conversation. But that destiny may be lived out on the level of consummation or of complete frustration, through experiencing a homecoming or a distant sense of constant exile, or more likely, some gradation along the spectrum that lies between. It is still our destiny, our life, but the sense of satisfaction involved and the possibility of fulfilling its promise may depend more upon a brave participation, a willingness to hazard ourselves in a very difficult world, a certain form of wild generosity with our gifts, a familiarity with our own depth, our own discovered surprising breadth, and always a long-practiced and robust vulnerability, equal to what any future may offer. Our destiny is fated not only by great powers beyond our beckoning horizon, but by the very way we shape and hold the everyday conversations of a familiar life. Our destiny is fated not only by great powers beyond our beckoning horizon, but by the very way we shape and hold the everyday conversations of a familiar life. The idea of destiny, as you point out, is first, it's a term we don't use very often, and nor do we use fate very often. These are kind of unfashionable ideas, although in, in another mode, I think people believe or want to believe that the things in their lives happen for a reason, right? That it's not, there's not a lot of accident. But it is interesting to consider this, this question of whether things in our lives could have been otherwise. I mean, we, we live with this sense of the possible. We're given a choice between various options in, in every moment, really. And it always seems coherent to ask, well, 
what would life be like had I taken a different path, but it's at least possible that what actually happens is the only thing that could have happened. I mean, in any case, the counterfactual, the notion of possibility is simply a thought that's occurring to us as we travel down whatever path we've actually taken. How do you think about this in terms of your own life? I do, I do feel it is possible to miss a tide in your life. And mm. uh, yeah, there are great lines by the great German poet Rilke, you know, where he's looking out at the garden in the autumn as things are dying away, and he says, he says no more things will happen. And even the thing, and it's, it's, it's about having missed a tide in his life. And he says, no more things in hap- will happen. And even the things that do happen will cheat you. Even you, my God, and you are the one who draws him daily deeper into your depths. The sense, I, I do remember, for instance, coming to the end of years of hard work towards a particular goal, which was which was a degree in marine zoology, which was no easy feat for me. My, I, I was always an artist. I was always more artistically inclined, more literately inclined. But when I was 14 or 15, I saw this extraordinary figure, Jacques Cousteau, sailing across our little mm-hmm. television set. And so I conceived a notion to follow the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso. And so mm. I, I put myself into the salt mines of biology, chemistry, and physics. And, and, but as I was coming towards my final examinations, you know, it was a time of a terrible bust in the life sciences. There were no jobs. There were no jobs anywhere. It was a, and, uh, and I decided instead of facing up to extreme heartbreak and disappointment in not getting any jobs, I wouldn't apply for any at all. So this is turning away and away from, from your original joy, you know, the original place you've set yourself, you're turning away from Santiago, because the disappointment you intuit, you know, is just too strong. And, uh, but I went to see, uh, I went to see my girlfriend at that time, I lived on the northern side of Snowdonia, and she lived on the southern side. We didn't see each each other very much, and she lived in a remote valley on a farm at the top of a wonderful place called Coombe Pennant, and uh, it's famous for its witchcraft, actually, and Alistair Crowley mm-hmm. used to call up the devil in a tower at the bottom, oh, yeah. and I'd always, <laughs> I'd hitchhike around, be dropped off, I would whistle as I went past this ruined tower where um, where all of this necromancer used to take place and walk up to the farm. Well, I arrived this time. I'd just done all my examinations. I'd made this very serious young man's vow not to apply for any jobs because I didn't want to be existentially disappointed, you know. Mm. And I didn't want to be sifting plankton in a station in, in the outer Hebrides either. I wanted that original blue water image. Well, I got to the farm, and it was a communal... It was a communal farm, so lots of people lived there. I knocked on the door, and I could tell there was no one in, just from the echo. But I was miles from anywhere. There was a storm coming in off the Irish Sea behind me, and halfway up the mountain there. So I let myself in, as you do when you're a student. you know. And and I was like Goldilocks in the house of the three bears. (laughs) There was no, (laughs) 
no one there. And I said, well, I'll get a fire going for them when they come back. It was quite cold, you know, so I got a fire going. And then I said, well, I'll make a cup of tea. And if they turn up, they'll have a cup of tea already made, you know, so I made a tea out. I can tell you, David, that, that in the film version of this, you are promptly cannibalized by witches. <laughs> well, I tell you, something even more extraordinary happened because I fell asleep in the chair and literally at midnight, there was a knock on the door. And I said, wait a minute, if someone's knocking on the door, it means they don't live here either. You know? so, <laughs> and we're, I tell you, this farm is remote. It's halfway up the mountainside you know, with the wind blowing yeah. and the rain blowing. And uh, I opened the door and there is this slightly disheveled figure having walked up the same track that I walked up. And, uh, and he's looking for someone else who lives in the house who also isn't there. And I said, well, I don't live here, but come in, sit by the fire, let's have a cup of tea, you know. And, uh, and we sat down and, uh, and as you do with a complete stranger, I said, uh, I started asking him what he did in his life. Yeah. He had this wonderful leather bag that was filled with papers, I noticed, because he opened it and put it down at the side, you know. And it didn't quite fit with his attire. He looked like this wonderful pilgrim figure, but there, here were all of these papers. I, I said, what's your, what's your work, by the way? He said, oh, I, I walk around doing audits of, wild, of Wildwood in, uh, in England and Wales, yeah. And I audit, you know, the carrying capacity of these old woodlands and trees. And I basically get the opportunity of spending a lot of time in these wild places, counting everything and, and then putting it together as to how healthy the system is. And I looked at him with my mouth open because it was a representation in a way of what I wanted in my life. And I, I said, how did you get work like that? And of course, I was asking myself, why have you given up on your own dream? Yeah. Although I wouldn't have consciously known I was asking myself that, but mm -hmm. that's what I was doing. Why have you got off the road to your Santiago? And he said, do you really want to know? I said, yes. He said, I was a drug addict in North London and I wanted to kill myself. And I looked at him, I said, really? He said, that's where I started. I was in a flat with other drug addicts. We all mistrusted and hated each other. We were all stealing from another. The, ad the addiction was the greatest thing of all. One rainy day when I was in there by myself, I tried to throw myself out of the window. But it was an old-fashioned sash window, which I had to lift up. And I was so weak at the time that I got halfway out with my head mm. in this flower box that was in ruins <laughs> outside. And the sash window came down on the back of my shoulders, you know. <laughs> and I was so weak, I couldn't get out of there, yeah. I was staring yeah. into this flower box, but there was a little drip from the roof above falling into one corner of the flower box and this little stream going through this tiny landscape. And of course, I had nowhere to go, no friends. I started working my hands in this ground, you know, and re, remolding it all. And I must have been there 45 minutes or an hour before one of my flatmates came in and helped me get out. But in that time, as my hands were working in that ground, I knew what I was supposed to do. And the hardest thing I ever did in the years that followed was walk past my dealer, literally outside the block of flats where we lived. 
and knock on a friend's door and ask him to take me in. I got taken in. I started doing landscaping just in a physical way, laboring. I went to night school. I, then I got a degree and then I got a master's. Now you see me here. Hmm. So I do believe, you know, that he could have been wedged in that window and not come to ground. Yeah. And he would have lived out his destiny from the distance of longing through the misery of his addiction to things that represented where he wanted to go on a, in a temporary basis through drug experiences, you know, which can be remarkable in themselves, you know, but sustaining them is another discipline. But also, I do believe that I could have been sat in front of that fire and not asked him that question. Mm -hmm. And my life, I would have still lived the same life on the way to Santiago, but I would have lived it out through distance and longing and maybe a parallel kind of admiration through reading, but perhaps not through consummation. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, I mean, that, I suppose that's what you speak about, Sam, when you talk about volition as opposed to willpower that there's, there's a way of coming into your body, coming into your voice, coming into your speech, in which you have a completely different future than, than if you didn't do that. It just strikes me as fundamentally mysterious. And if you pay attention, the mystery never recedes. And again, we're, we're always confronted with simply what happens, right? The thought that does occur to you, the memory that does arise, the intention that actually becomes effective that leads to action. It's like we're driving a car, but we're not looking through the windshield at the future. We're, we're looking in the rearview mirror at what's already passed. And in some ways, we, we have more control over the past than the future. At least we, we can change what the past means to us in yes. a way that's decisive. I mean, the future is, we, we really don't know what's going to happen next. You know, in, in this conversation, we don't, we, we have a plan, we have a roadmap, you know, yes. we, I know the words we want to talk about, but, you know, thus far we've talked about very little that has been planned. And so it's all just unfolding. But when you, when you look at your life, it, it, it seems like, actually, I think you made this point in a in one of your essays in, in Consolations, I believe, it could have been a poem, but isn't there an image of you standing at the, the back of a boat looking at the wake rather than, than looking forward? Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, it's like we're always in the presence of the wake we're leaving yes. in the world. But there, it's not to say that it's entirely passive. I mean, you, you have a, a line in, in uh, this essay, Destiny, that uh, we are shaped by our shaping of the world. Yes. In acting on your environment, you, you're, yes. you are now creating an environment that is acting back on you, uh, and sometimes in incredibly powerful ways that yes. determine everything. Yeah, we have all of these inherited qualities, but we can bring them to together in a way which is, which is a kind of uh, catalytic to new possibilities. I have one, the only poem that I ever wrote under commission 
was one commissioned by the Boeing company for the 777 airplane. Mm. After I'd worked with their top leadership and uh, they just launched the plane and they'd won a, they'd won a, an aerospace trophy, the Collier trophy, and they wanted a poem at the celebratory dinner. Well, I said to the executive who, who'd been sent to request it, I said, poets don't do very well under these circumstances, I said, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll have a go at it. And, um, you know, I suddenly had this really powerful physical sense of all of the time I'd spent on airplanes, you know, in my life of nonstop traveling. And, uh, and the remarkable and biblical scenes you often see out of the window or looking down, you know, over the Mississippi Delta shining like a national guitar, as Paul Simon said, all of these remarkable scenes. And yet it's, it's, it's equally remarkable how often people have the shutters down yeah, and they're yeah. watching and they're watching something really unremarkable on that little screen in front of them. You know? And uh, you've, you've hit upon one of my pet peeves here. The, the fact, admittedly, it's been a long time since I've been on an airplane. We're still under the, the shadow of COVID here. But the idea that people would prefer to spend five or 10 hours in a dark tube watching their screens when certainly under conditions of daylight there is a better view of earth than they have ever seen in any other circumstance unfolding outside that window it's um yes. yeah I, I i find that very frustrating exactly so i've often thought that that dynamic is actually because people can't really understand the invisible forces that are holding them in place so part of the dynamic, right. it's not the whole dynamic, but part of the dynamic is I'm actually not here. I'm not traveling <laughs> at 500 yeah. miles per hour, 36,000 feet above the ground with no visible means of support. Yeah. But every now and again, as the airplane drops down, especially as you're coming into land through layers of humidity and temperature, you'll often see this solid white line suddenly suddenly form around the around the wing and when you look at that solid white line you realize that the forces that are holding you in place are actually as solid as concrete but they're actually made up of a conversation between the shape of the wing and the velocity of the air around around the wing itself yeah if you only mm. have the wing you'll just travel like a missile you know and and hit your uh, Sorry, if you only have velocity, yeah, you'll just hit your destination like a, a target. Yeah. If you only have the wing, you'll stall without the velocity. But you put the two together, and you can travel thousands of miles. Now, the interesting thing is that shape has been there since the beginning of time as a potential for human beings. The shape of that wing, I forget the technical term for it, but mm. all aerospace engineers know it. Yeah, and, uh, Airfoil, I think. Yes. And, uh, but it was only 120 years ago that those two qualities were brought together. So this is the piece I wrote, and it's about, it's about holding the conversation at a deeper level so you can travel further, yeah. travel to places you never imagined you could, yeah, metaphorically and physically. Mm. And this is the poem I wrote. It's called Working Together. It's really about the conversational, what I call the conversational nature of reality. Working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world 
and by the world are shaped again, the visible and the invisible, working together in common cause to produce the miraculous, to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, that there's the sense that there's some kind of fixed truth to who we are is really utterly illusory. The idea that that would be our default on any given day of our lives is pretty surprising when you look at just how permeable we are to influence and and just so much of what we recognize as our own minds is built upon culture and relationships to specific people and ideas and it's just yes there are tides of information and yes intention and it, we're just being we're continually yeah. being swept in various directions and it, it's just many of us become numb to this process but yeah we really are being born up by invisible forces moment to moment Yes, and uh, I do feel that numbness you're speaking to comes from occupying the periphery too frequently. I don't think there's any way for any human being not to live a life where they make visitations to the periphery. <laughs> and, uh, hmm. But um, the life totally lived at the periphery is one of insulation and numbness that knows neither grief nor joy. I always remember in my teens, I started, early teens, I started getting really interested in the human voice. And I started to study my own voice. And I noticed that my voice inhabited my body differently according to who I was speaking to. Mm -hmm. If I was with a really close and comfortable friend, then my, my voice was really in my body. I was at ease in myself. Yeah? And my voice was fuller. It was more, you know, down, connected to the ground, you know. If I was in the presence, you know, of a school bully, then my voice was distracted towards the edge, you know, it was kind of atomized, you know, and unrooted. You know? And I noticed the same thing with my father, that, that I found it really difficult to have my voice fully in my body when I was in the presence of this fearsome figure called father you know? not that he was any more fierce it was just the usual father-son hmm. dynamic but i started to actually purposely spend time around my father in order to talk to him and practice having my voice in my body hmm. so my, my dad would be getting in the car and say dad can i come with you and he said well i'm just going to your uncle tom's i said no i'd love to come with you and he was really surprised you know and I'd sit there just practicing keeping my voice in my body while I spoke to this entity called Father. <laughs> and, 
And after a while, I started to realize, yeah, I'm actually a completely different person when I have my voice in my body than when I have it at the periphery. I have a completely different future because of the conversation I hold with the voice at the center of my body. And this whole insight actually led to a a new sincerity and dedication in my poetry that I was writing at the time. I started to write seriously when I was 12 or 13, actually. I'd written since I was seven or eight, but I started to take it on, you know, as a, you could say, the full apprenticeship when I was 12, 13, 14. And that experience of, of feeling the way that I could alter my destiny through physical presence was a crucial entrance into my adulthood, both as a, as a human being and as a poet. Hmm. Okay, well, let's consider another essay of yours. This is on the term close. Yes, this might be one of my favorite pieces, actually. Close. Close is what we almost always are. Close to happiness. Close to another. Close to leaving. Close to tears. Close to God. Close to losing faith, close to being done, close to saying something, or close to success, and even with the greatest sense of satisfaction, close to giving the whole thing up. Our human essence lies not in arrival, but in being almost there. We are creatures who are on the way. Our journey a series of impending anticipated arrivals. We live by unconsciously measuring the inverse distances of our proximity. We live by unconsciously measuring the inverse distances of our proximity. We live by unconsciously measuring the inverse distances of our proximity an intimacy calibrated by the vulnerability we feel in giving up our sense of separation. To go beyond our normal identities and become closer than close is to lose our sense of self in temporary joy, a form of arrival that only opens us to deeper forms of intimacy that blur our fixed, controlling surface identities. To consciously become close is a courageous form of unilateral disarmament, a chancing of our arm and our love, a willingness to hazard our affections, and an unconscious declaration that we might be equal to the inevitable loss that the vulnerability of being close will bring. To consciously become close is a courageous form of unilateral disarmament, a chancing of our arm and our love, a willingness to hazard our affections and an unconscious declaration that we might be equal to the inevitable loss that the vulnerability of being close will bring. Human beings do not find their essence through fulfillment or eventual arrival, but by staying close to the way they like to travel.
to the way they hold the conversation between the ground on which they stand and the horizon to which they go. We are, in effect, always close, always close to the ultimate secret, that we are more real in our simple wish to find a way than any destination we could reach. The step between not understanding that and understanding that is as close as we get to happiness. We are, in effect, always close, always close to the ultimate secret, that we are more real in our simple wish to find a way than any destination we could reach. The step between not understanding that and understanding that is as close as we get to happiness. This follows really nicely from destiny, the way you consider our movement through time and um, this line you have, our, our human essence lies not in arrival, but in being almost there. Mm-hmm. When you pay attention to it, this is such a powerful and often disconcerting experience, this, this, this recognition that destinations, really all destinations, are in the end mirages. The experience is not of arriving truly again and again. It's of seeming to arrive, expecting to arrive, but then as you pull into that particular station or land on that particular spot, you try to seize whatever landmark had been in front of you for years. You gratify that desire. You meet that goal. The the insubstantiality of it, the fact that it then simply admits of a future horizon to which you're now moving. Yes. It's really, it's it's quite amazing. One thing I, I get from this essay is that really the crucial thing is to pick the right horizon. Yes. The real difference between yes. happiness and unhappiness is is on how one journeys and in what direction yes. one has aimed oneself, but it's not in a series of arrivals. Exactly, Sam. To be able to feel that gravitational pull, to hear that voice, to see the glint between the clouds or the path, you know, up a Himalayan valley that's calling you, just the sheer delight of following the path. Some of the crucial lines I have in a poem called Santiago, actually speaking of Santiago, the place to which we've dedicated ourselves. And it says, and you are more marvelous in your simple wish to find the way. You know, that one of the end insights is that you are more marvelous in your simple wish to find a way than the gilded roofs of any destination you could reach. You are more marvelous in your simple wish to find a way than the gilded roofs of any destination you could reach. I mean, it's, uh, I suppose this is a, this is also looking at a really necessary quality of self-compassion because it's a, it's a lovely, merciful thing to realize that your essence lies not in arrival, but in being almost there. 
I mean, don't mm. you can feel the invitation to rest in that? Oh my God, I don't always have to be this achieved, this achieved laureate, you know, who has been given the accolade. Yeah. And besides, as soon as you're given the accolade and the laureate, you'll be looking for the next thing. You'll be looking for the Nobel Prize after that. You know? mm. So, so, um, and one of my favorite lines, which so surprised me when I wrote it, because I couldn't even understand what I'd written when I wrote it, was we live by unconsciously measuring the inverse distances of our proximity. I had to, I had to reread that three times after I'd written it, which is, which is a, a kind of attribute to the mm-hmm. depth from which it came, in a sense. We live by unconsciously measuring the inverse distances of our proximity. Yeah. Uh, and isn't that true, you know, in, a, in an intimate relationship, when you're on the outs with your, with your spouse, you know, when you're missing each other or you're in an argument, you know, you can feel the power of the love even through your present state of misery and in, in not being able to connect. Yeah. You can feel where you're supposed to be if you allow yourself to fully, fully feel the depth of your exile. Yeah, yes. I like this, this line you have yes. about unilateral disarmament with respect to, to intimacy, that really it's on, it's on you to put down the walls and yes. uh, this closeness with respect to emotional distance as opposed to exactly. temporal yes. distance. Yes, yeah. And that's so physical too, you know, it's so physically vulnerable to give yourself over and in that giving over not to have the answer. The answer's going to come from the conversation itself and the mutual trust that you're constantly trying to keep alive between you. And so I always say that every conversation moves along an axis of vulnerability and uh, the conversation ends when when the vulnerability ends yeah there are tricks to achieve this not quite sure how this idea first occurred to me it might have been reflecting on stoic philosophy at some point but this idea of I mean, when you when you feel that you're just sort of go, going through the motions in your day and in your relationships. You're not really connecting with the people around you, with your family members. You're more or less taking everything for granted. To just take a moment to imagine how you would feel if you had died yesterday, right? Everything you had experienced up until yesterday was all you got out of life. And now you're reborn. Now you get to come back and you get more time with these people in your life. How would you walk into the kitchen on the wings of that resurrection? How grateful would you be? How attentive would you be? And, you know, without making any declaration about this to the people around you, just to come back into your own life in a way that treats it with all of the care and gratitude appropriate to it because we have no idea how much time we have together exactly that's really well said and you have the sheer privilege of existence i have a parallel exercise that i do actually which is a 
came out of a real experience, a tiny loss that that magnified all the other possible losses in my life. I'd uh, landed in Britain. I was lucky enough to be in business class in British Airways. I had my my Mont Blanc fountain pen in my pocket when I fell asleep. And when I woke up in this massive kind of chair bed, the pen was gone from my pocket. And I knew immediately it had fallen down into the mechanism. Hmm. Well, this is not only a very expensive pen, it's... Uh, it had my signature engraved in the side. And, and I dream about this pen because I, I sign people's books with it. You know, it's, so it's mm-hmm. this connection. I write poetry with it at times you know, when I'm not on my laptop. So I had this moment, you know, that moment when the, when the bell goes on the plane and everyone stands up and everyone wants to be off the plane, no matter what class they've been in. <laughs> <laughs> and there was that moment where I said, do I stay to look for it or do I go? And and I decided I was going to stay, so I started taking the chair apart. You know? And a flight attendant came up and, at, after everyone had got off the plane and said, in very British fashion, can I help you, sir? Which meant, <laughs> would you please get off the plane so we can <laughs> all go home? Mm-hmm. I said, yes, you can. I've lost a very, very precious pen to me down in this chair. She said, you sure you've lost it? It's not in your... No, don't. So we went through all that. No, it's down here. Well, she said, after about 10 minutes, she said, you know, in order to take the next layer apart, we have to call an engineer on board. So I looked at her and I said, yes, so <laughs> please do. So they, they brought an engineer on board. He took the seat apart and there was my pen. And I was so pleased. And I walked down the jetway, so happy. But then I said to myself, my God, I said, it's just a pen, David. What if you lost your daughter and you got her back, you know? Hmm. What if you lost your son and he came back to you in the same way? What if you lost your ability to see and then you were given the ability to have the color blue or the green fields in your life again? What if you'd lost your hearing and then you could hear music again? So I often, I will often practice having everything being given back to me in the same way you have that exercise of coming back into your life mm. as if you've been been given another chance yeah so sam we have been speaking really about about the whole physicality of incarnation which which can seem like a theological abstract the word incarnation but it it really means your willingness to come into your body yeah and one of the reasons we abstract ourselves from the body and don't live in the body is because we can't quite believe the measure of heartbreak in even the most ordinary life. You will say goodbye to everyone you know, or they mm-hmm. will say goodbye to you first. So one of the ways we defend against this is by abstracting ourselves from the body and the conversation that the body holds. Well, I had this remarkable experience just a week or so ago of of seeing this astonishing documentary on the BBC called Brotherhood, The Inner Life of Monks, looking at the only Trappist monastery left in England, actually. Mm. And it opens with this man who's on his, what you realize very soon is his deathbed, actually. It's an elderly monk. And it's quite difficult to hear what he's saying to begin with, because he's so weak. And... Then he starts talking about his life of prayer, and he suddenly says, 
oh, I stopped praying years ago. And the immediate thought of the viewer is, oh, he stopped believing. He lost his faith. Then he goes on, he says, I stopped praying years ago because my whole life became a prayer. I was moving through the living, breathing atmosphere of being gifted and gifting. And then the next image is extraordinary. It's, it's of the man in his coffin surrounded mm. by his fellow monks celebrating his life and his passage into the next one. So this is the, this is the piece I wrote coming from that, that extraordinary experience uh, of watching that brilliant filmmaker and that brilliant monk come together. <laughs> and it's called Your Prayer. Your prayer only began with words. Your prayer only began with words. Each one you realize, just a hand on the door to silence. Even in their gathered, chanted strength, what you said in the end was only a shoulder against the grain of wood trying to keep the entrance open. Until that door, which had been no door at all, gave in until that door, which had been no door at all, gave in to necessary grief, which is really only the full understanding of what you were missing all along, which is really just that vulnerability you needed to make a proper invitation. It's really just that vulnerability you needed to make a proper invitation, which is really just you admitting the full depth of your love at last. The heartbroken heart coming to heartfelt rest. The opening inside you now filled to the gleaming brim. The opening inside you now filled to the gleaming brim and casting its generous beam. The part of you you thought was foolish. The wisest voice of all. The part of you you thought was foolish. The wisest voice of all. Yeah, that's really nice. What was the documentary again? Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. Brotherhood. The Inner Life of Monks, yeah. There's another great film on monks, the, uh, the uh, Cistercians in, um, in France. Mm. The, I think it was called uh, Integrate Silence, mm. which is, uh, the, the whole documentary is, I believe it's all in silence. It's just following the monks through their day at the... Um, this amazing monastery in the mountains outside of Grenoble, I believe. Yes. The, the Grand Chartreuse. Yes. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Uh, you made me think of a line by Mary Oliver where she, uh, she says, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I often think when I see monks moving around in silence, they're just trying to get through Mary Oliver's only. <laughs> you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Can you be silent enough and large enough you know, to allow your natural attraction and therefore affection to what surrounds you in creation and in others take its full and generous form? Well, there's, there's one other essay here I'd like to include, David, with your indulgence, and that is around the word help. I think it follows yes. nicely here. So let, let's hear that now. Help. 
Help is strangely something we want to do without. As if the very idea disturbs and blurs the boundaries of our individual endeavors. As if we cannot face how much we need in order to go on. As if we cannot face how much we need just in order to go on. We are born with an absolute necessity for help. Grow well only with a continuous succession of extended hands, and as adults, depend upon others for our further successes and possibilities in life, even as competent individuals. Even the most solitary writer needs a reader, the most Machiavellian mobster a trusted lieutenant, the most independent candidate a voter. Not only does the need for help never leave us alone, we must apprentice ourselves to its different necessary forms at every particular threshold of our lives. At every stage, we are dependent on our ability to ask for specific forms of help at very specific times and in very specific ways. At every stage, we are dependent upon our ability to ask for specific forms of help at very specific times and in very specific ways. Even at the end, the dignity of our going depends on others' willingness to help us die well. The sincerity of their help, often commensurate to the help we extended to them in our own life. Every transformation has, at its heart, the need to ask for the right kind of generosity. Every transformation has, at its heart, the need to ask for the right kind of generosity. There are two forms of generosity or help for which we must ask visible help and invisible help. Visible help is practical or transactional help. Asking for visible help, we ask for help with what we can see as troubling us, or we pay for a bed and a meal on our onward way, or we pay someone to work for us. But it may be that it is the second less easily recognizable and invisible help which is most crucial at stepping into the unknown. Though we can think of invisible help in the old sense of an intervention from angelic or parallel worlds, we can also think of it in an everyday practical way. Invisible help is the help that we do not as yet know we need. Invisible help is the help that we do not as yet know we need. Invisible help is the help we are not quite ready for. And all we can do is shape our identity toward revelation, toward being surprised, toward paying attention to what is just about to appear over the horizon of our understanding. This overwhelming need for visible and invisible help never really changes in a human life from the first day we are brought from the womb calling lustily for those commodities. We need extraordinary physical help to get through our first years, 
continued help through our childhood and extraordinary emotional help and good luck to get through our adolescence. After that, the need for continual help becomes more subtle, hidden as it is by the illusion that we are suddenly free agents able to survive on our own, the one corner of the universe able to supply its own answers. It may be that the ability to know the necessity for help, the ability to know the necessity for help, to know how to look for that help, and then most importantly, how to ask for it, is one of the primary transformative dynamics that allows us to emancipate ourselves into each new epoch of our lives. Without the understanding that we need a particular form of aid at every crucial threshold in our lives, and without the robust vulnerability of asking for that help, we cannot pass through the door that bars us from the next dispensation of our lives. We cannot birth ourselves. To ask for visible and invisible help, and to ask for the right kind of help, and to ask in a way in which we feel that it is no less than our due, that in effect we deserve a visible and invisible helping hand, may be an engine of transformation itself. Our greatest vulnerability is the very door through which we must pass in order to open the next horizon of our lives. In the very end comes also another beginning, the ancient sense of a door opening to some final unknown, some invisible voice attempting to help us come to terms with our own disappearance. The hand extended to help us over a horizon equally as mysterious as the one we crossed at our birth. In the very end comes also another beginning, the ancient sense of a door opening to some final unknown, some invisible voice attempting to help us come to terms with our own disappearance the hand extended to help us over a horizon equally as mysterious as the one we crossed at our birth. So I, I wanted to include this because I just have one question about it, which um, this has always seemed psychologically strange to me, but it, it seems quite important that there's this asymmetry between the way we feel helping others and the way we feel receiving help rather often and it's because being generous yes is really is just an unalloyed good i mean we feel good about it it's and when we're truly generous which is to say when we're, when we actually want to help and not that we've been somehow yes you know captured by um by somebody else's uh, desire that we help, and it's not really, you know, yes. honest. But when we feel the spirit of generosity and are acting on it, it's just a pure good. But to receive generosity is often hard for many of us. I'm just wondering what your your thoughts are on that. Well, part of it is we've all been so badly educated into the need for help 
So we're not very hospitable to it because it's so tied to our, our vulnerability. The way we needed help when we were born, absolute help from our mother, our father, our relatives, from shelter, from food, and uh, admitting to it, you know, mm. is uh, blurs the edges of this eye that, as you are always, you know, saying so eloquently, we're try- we're always trying to establish in too formal and too fixed a way. So, when you really open out to help, you stop being this single entity. I do remember my first mother-in-law, actually, in my first marriage, being an incredible teacher to me. There was, there was the way that there was a way that she said thank you whenever she was given anything, whether it was in the form of help or a gift. That was just so remarkable. It was just so, it was just so present. It was just mm. so real. She really accepted help. If you could do something she couldn't do, she would turn to you, look you in the eyes, and say thank you. And you know, when you think about it, there's no greater compliment a human being gets than being said thank you to for their gifts or for something they've offered. You know, mm. we're all desperate to be recognized through what we have to offer. I, you know, in my work in leadership, I, I, try to, I try to explain this to leaders that everyone around you is looking for the invitation that you are making to them. And quite often they're existentially disappointed because there actually is no invitation. So what is your invitation? Can you make it to them? Yeah. And the greatest invitation is for you to say to them that, they have gifts that you do not have, and therefore you need their help. Mm. That is the most powerful leadership invitation you can make. Yeah. I only have one pair of eyes, one pair of ears, one imagination, one intellect. And it, you are much better in this area than I am. No matter my place in the hierarchy, I need you, and you're appreciated. This You don't even have to say it formally, you know? It's very, that's what creates loyalty between people in friendship or, as well as in a collegiate relationship. Yeah. Now, the other part that I felt uh, is really, really necessary to understand in help is that there are two forms of help, two main forms of help. There are probably hundreds of forms of help, but I split it into two. two. Mm. One is visible help, you know, which is you could say that that's logistical, everyday practical help, you know. I need this help carrying this thing. It's too big. It's too unwieldy. It needs two, literally. It's literal, physical. Can you help me carry this? Yeah, that's physical help. Will you come in and work for my organization? I'll pay you this amount of money. That's visible help. But then there's this extraordinary phenomena of invisible help. And we tend to think of invisible help in the theologically historical context, you know, of angels or parallel powers or, of uh, worlds other than our own. But it's really interesting, I think, and very practical also to think of invisible help as the help that you do not as yet know you need. If you're not paying scintillating attention to what's going on, you will walk right past it. It's, the, it's exactly the help you need at this threshold of your life for the next dispensation of your existence. Yeah. 
And all of us can look back in our lives and remember moments when we walked right past that help. And it was exactly the thing we needed, and we said, no, I can do it all myself, thank you very much. You know. Well, there's also invisible help that you actually receive but are unaware of it. I mean, there are people who are you exactly. know, pr- protecting yeah. your reputation for you behind your back, and you are none yes. the wiser, right? They're saying good things about you or, or disabusing people of their misunderstandings about you. Or, exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Or suddenly realizing things your mother and your father gave to you mm. that you were long years refusing to admit. Now, that's a really good, that's a really good dynamic, Sam. Yes, the, uh, all the help you've been given that you refused to see uh, or couldn't see. Um. Well, um, David, this is a great place to leave it. And um, Lovely. what will be obvious to all of our listeners is the magnitude of the, the audible help you have given me in submitting to yet another conversation on these topics. It's really wonderful to have your voice here. So thanks again. Well, the, uh, the experience is entirely mutual, Sam. So it's great we get to all of these surprising places together. So yeah. it's a pleasure. Onward to Santiago. Yes. Exactly. And beyond. <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs>